Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. A full five years before the American Revolution, backcountry farmers in North Carolina took up arms. While often grouped in with the later Patriot movement, the Regulators had little interest in royal separation. Instead of fighting as revolutionaries, the North Carolina Regulation was an effort to root out corruption from within the colonial government by any means necessary. Culminating with the now infamous Battle of Alamance, the War of the Regulation remains one of the most contentious actions in the history of colonial America. On this episode, we discuss the Regulators. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American rebellions, the winners and losers, and those who had competing visions for the modern American Republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. The conversation's always growing. For news, updates, and events, please visit my website, bradykreitzer.com. And of course, for everything Wartime on the web, bonus content, and ways you can contribute, wartimepodcast.com. Speaking of contributions, would there ever be a more appropriate intro for this show uh, than a little bit of Regulators from the 90s? Nate Dog, listen, I'm from the 90s, I love the 90s, but quite frankly, I couldn't afford that intro music, so maybe if you donate in the future... Uh, we can have a little more 90s hip-hop on the show. But tonight, we are talking about a really, really interesting and important topic. One that, if I may add, is much more in my wheelhouse uh, than some of the other topics that we've already discussed here in Season 6 and some of the topics that we will discuss in Season 6. And that is the Regulator War of North Carolina, 1770 and 1771. This is a really important, really cool topic, and very timely. We talk about rebellions, but I ask, when is a rebellion not a rebellion? Well, maybe when it's a regulation. For the men that we're going to talk about today, on this episode, Rebellion was the farthest thing from their mind when they picked up muskets and they marched in formation and they met on the field of battle in 1771 at Alamance. Rebellion wasn't there. In their mind, they were not rebels, but regulators. And they were not revolting against the powers that be, but simply trying to ensure that the existing laws were being enforced the proper way. The Regulator War of the 1760s and 1770s in North Carolina 
is a very challenging subject, but it fits perfectly in this series. And again, if you're from the 90s, it makes a heck of a song. So let's talk a little bit about the Regulator War. But before that, of course, you know the drill. We need to talk about a number of extenuating factors. Geography, religion, ethnicity, and race. Class, and upward mobility. When you talk about these things, in many, many ways, you really are talking about the story of America. These issues are seminal for us today in the 21st century. They were seminal for the people involved in the regulator conflict in the 18th. So it's very fitting that they should be front and center first and foremost in our discussion of this very important time in history. Let's talk about colonial America. If you've listened to the season on the American Revolution, you know full well how diverse and complicated and nuanced colonial America, especially America in the 18th century, really was. You know that people did not look the same. You know they did not speak the same language or worship the same God. And you also know that there were many, many different visions for what this new world could be, should be, and ultimately would be. That's what this season's all about. But we do need to review the complexity of colonial America, because that's where you find, at the heart, uh, the origin of the regulation story. Many, many peoples, by the 1750s, for example, were moving to the New World, uh, and they came from all over Europe. They came from Scotland, they came from Ireland, uh, they came from Germany, they came from Spain. Many of them brought their old habits with them to the New World. And by this point, America is a changing place. Early on, at least in the Atlantic coast where we're dealing with, it's a very English place. Uh, not to say all the people are English, but the governmental structures are very foundationally English. But now, after about 130 years of colonial settlement, you see these pockets of different groups moving in. German-speaking peoples uh, that have a variety of religions. Some are Anabaptists. Some are Moravians. They're moving in. You have Scots-Irish moving in with their very fiery Presbyterianism. You have English religious minorities moving in. We've talked about the Puritans in previous uh, seasons. Uh, but now you have groups like the Dunkards and the Quakers moving in. All of this is making America a pluralistic place. That is to say, ethnically, religiously, and culturally, it is all very diverse. It was maybe initially homogenous, but that didn't take very long to disappear. And in that regard, the America that we see today, an America of many languages and many cultures, whether you are pleased about that or not, is built after a very old model. Nowhere did you see this more than the mid-Atlantic region. That is to say, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Now, you may be asking, what does New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware have to do with North Carolina? In the colonial world at this point, nearly everything. 
because these people moved initially to the middle colonies, the mid-Atlantic region, because there was a general sense of religious freedom there. That is to say, you could worship as you pleased without paying a penalty uh, or accepting a role as a second-class citizen. But by the 1750s and 1760s, that's really starting to creep into all colonies uh, in the British in British North America. So you see a lot of these peoples, Germans, Welsh, Scots-Irish, uh, moving out of Pennsylvania, exploring new territories. Now there's a couple things they know every time they move. If you're going to move to a different colony, you'll certainly be welcomed. But you have to move on the terms of the people who already live there. And the people who live there are predominantly English, and really hug the Atlantic seaboard. They live in big cities. That's their realm. If you want to move there, you're welcome to. Pack your bags. But you know you'll be living somewhere further west than is really, truly comfortable. That's where the new world is growing. And they need people to move to those places. So living in the west is a status. Living in the west is a statement of where you stand in the larger order of the colonial world. And again, if you do live in those regions, odds are you do not fit the mold of what uh, early British colonists would think of as a real Briton. That is to say, someone who is either born in England or more, more notably by 1750 and 1760, someone who has very uh, malleable, uh, very traceable English ancestry. So you're one of these German families or Scots-Irish families that moves to, example, for example, North Carolina. You're not going to live on the coast in the beautiful cities. You're going to live in the West. You're going to live in or near the Appalachian Mountains. And that might not seem like a big deal, but it's actually tremendously important. Because even though we can think of a place like North Carolina as one big space, the reality is geography and, more importantly, geomorphology, topography, the shape and lay of the land, is everything. Many of these people who live in the West, in what would be at the time Orange County, North Carolina, Alamance County, North Carolina, uh, live in pretty rough places, and the mountains that divide them from the eastern part of the state are enormous. If you can picture the Appalachian Mountains, they run uh, north to south, along the Atlantic seaboard of the United States today. They are really sort of uh, sliced in a parallel fashion uh, by valleys. The longest valley uh, being the Great Valley, running from New Hampshire all the way to northern Alabama. Well, if you're living in North Carolina in 1765, and you're one of these recent immigrant families... Uh, odds are you make your own shoes, you make your own clothes, you make your own hats. You don't need to buy goods from the very metropolitan eastern part of the of the state of the colony. Uh, for example, New Bern being the capital, that's where the governor lives. That's where the administration lives. Uh, you don't need to buy things from them. You might need to buy needles uh, or other very specific. Uh, artisan uh, tools, but for the most part, you do everything on your own. And if you do need to travel to buy something, to get something new, odds are you're following the valley. And that valley is not going to let you move east to west. It's going to let you move north into Virginia or again south into South Carolina. 
So just in the case of North Carolina, for example, you have a colony really divided, and it's divided in half. And the divisions are far greater than just where you live. It's who you are. It's where you're from. It's your God. It's your wealth. It's your upward mobility. It's your place in the world. Geography. It's everything. So that kind of sets the stage for North Carolina. You have two worlds in the East, very metropolitan, very rich, very English. That's really important. And then the West, uh, sort of a frontier place. Uh, everyone's farming. Everyone's carving out their own way of life. You don't have cities and towns. You have individual homesteads. Uh, and you have an overarching sense of self-reliance. Notice I said nothing about how you feel about the government. Because all too often we can equate the frontier regions with being anti-government or anti-establishment. And that really is a slippery slope and a dangerous trap. And it's an assumption that we just really shouldn't make. Because it, it will color this whole thing for us. This whole regulator movement amongst others. Uh, and prove to be very problematic. Now, focusing on North Carolina, specifically where this story goes, North Carolina is an interesting colony. Uh, it's controlled by a governor. In this case, the governor's name is William Tryon. Um, but the organization is such that uh, there is a methodology to controlling this very large but very divided space. And again, it's a little technical, but hey, what are we doing here, right? Uh, so here's how it works. The colony is really uh, bisected in half, long ways. Land in the southern half of the colony is controlled directly by the King of England. And if you live there, you don't own that land. This is a very European idea, but hey, North Carolina is a European colony. Instead, you pay an annual quit rent, we call it, uh, basically a rent, uh, to the king for use of the land. He has agents who operate in the area who have agents that operate for them, and so on and so on. It's kind of like a pyramid uh, of bureaucracy until you get to the person who ultimately collects your rents and your taxes. That's if you're lucky enough to live in the southern portion of North Carolina. If you live in the northern portion of North Carolina, things get to be much more tricky because the king doesn't own the northern portion. The northern portion is owned by a landed aristocrat in England named Lord Granville. And Granville will do the same thing the king does uh, on a personal level. He'll have agents who collect taxes, who collect rents, who collect fees and duties all throughout the colony. If you're lucky enough to live in the southern area where the king controls things, um, that's good for you. Because the king is in England, and the king has colonies all along the eastern seaboard of North America. He has colonies in the Caribbean. He has colonies in Africa, East Asia, and India. He is not going to pick on individual subjects. He basically has a one-size-fits-all view of empire. Um, he's not in the business of subjugating or oppressing or terrorizing anyone. Lord Granville's another story. He doesn't control the whole empire. He just controls this one piece of North Carolina, maybe a few other holdings elsewhere. So he's going to pay special attention uh, to the, the amount of revenue and wealth coming out of North Carolina. But even that, that split in North Carolina, isn't the heart of this matter. 
There's another issue. By the way, the people who live in those areas, east and west, frontier and city, don't have any problem with that. That's just the world they live in. Okay, it's just sort of what makes the world go round. The problem they do have is how those rents and taxes and fees are collected. And again, it talks about a larger bureaucracy. Uh, most of the agents who collect the fees, the rents, the taxes in North Carolina, this is true, by the way, in most American colonies in the 18th century, uh, aren't paid a salary. Instead, they're paid a percentage of everything they collect. So it would behoove a land agent or a sheriff or a tax collector uh, to collect as much as possible. It makes the people at the top richer, and of course they enrich themselves. In North Carolina, what is a little different is that the, bureau the bureaucrats, the sheriffs, and the tax collectors are extraordinarily corrupt. They often collect rents from people and pocket all of the money. They never keep a record of doing it. So people will get notices, hey, your money has been paid when it clearly has. And they begin to be extorted, for lack of a better word. It's a corrupt place. And many of the people in the West become very aware of just how much they're being railroaded uh, by these land agents and sheriffs. Uh, and they know exactly where to point the finger. Because these land agents and these sheriffs and these tax collectors, um, again, they aren't really appointed by the king necessarily. They're mostly people from the east, from the major cities, the English of the east, if you would. Um, and they're, they're mostly appointed without really the westerners having any say uh, in who gets the positions. So the divide we're going to focus on today is not uh, these frontiersmen versus the king or frontiersmen versus royal authority. It's these frontiersmen who have really no problem with the system. They understand you need to pay rent, but they have a serious problem with individual people in individual positions, officers of the colony, breaking the law. So they begin to form themselves into associations, and they ultimately will call themselves regulators. They refer to their movement as the regulation. And that's really important because they aren't rebels or revolutionaries. They aren't trying to overthrow royal authority. They're trying to regulate the system as it's built. They have no problem with the system as, it, as it's built, as it's designed. The problem they have is with the functionality of it, specifically individuals who take advantage of their position and become corrupted and ultimately, again, take significant money from the people of the West. But there's other problems that these regulators uh, are going to deal with. And again, these regulators are average people living in the, in the western part of the colony of North Carolina uh, who have serious grievances and very legitimate grievances, by the way, uh, and who are looking for an outlet to solve those problems. One big issue they have in North Carolina specifically that will lead to the regulator movement uh, is the lack of paper money. Right? Paper money, big deal. Well, let's talk about paper money because it's very important, especially in this case. Paper money can only be produced in colonial North Carolina by an official proclamation by the governor. That allows the money supply to be very limited and also avoids the big I word, inflation. That was a real problem. 
So the economy of the West is largely not based on buying goods with cash, but it's based instead on trade. I will give you X amount of beef if you give me Y amount of corn, and so on and so on. Uh, and, th and it functions well, but when the tax man comes, it's a problem because the tax man won't take uh, meat or wool uh, or grain trade items uh, for his revenue collection. He'll only take cold, hard cash, and there really isn't that much of it. So regulators begin to grow concerned. Uh, they think there is an inherent bias between the East and the West, and they're right. And we've seen this how many times? Go back and listen to our episode in Season 1 about Bacon's Rebellion. It was in Virginia, but it's the same idea. In fact, buy my new book, War in the Peaceable Kingdom, and you'll see the same thing happening in Pennsylvania. What I'm saying here is, this East-West divide... The wealth, the power, the money, and the influence being in the English East on the, on the seaboard, and the people who are really getting the raw end of the deal, mostly immigrants living in the West, uh, can play out over and over again. The evidence is overwhelming, and we can't take that out of this story. So let's see when things heat up. Initially, we're talking about 1768. The regulator movement comes together with very specific goals. They have a meeting, and they would talk about at this meeting what they want from their new position. They don't say, kill the king. They don't say, overthrow the governor. They don't say, let's march and burn this mother down. They don't say any of that. Again, if you're equating these men with anti-royal revolution... And it's been done before, as we'll talk about. You're going to miss a lot of really important details. Because we largely, uh, after the fact, in hindsight, place that motivation with them. When that's not what they had. Instead, they got together and they made a list of grievances. Like, for example, the Declaration of Independence. All the Declaration of Independence was, if you read it, was a list of grievances. Here's why we're mad, and here's what you did to us to make us mad. That didn't happen by itself. It didn't fall from the sky. And although it would go on to change the world, it wasn't the first document of that type ever made. In 1775, in western Pennsylvania, Hennestown made this very uh, smartly designed list of grievances. Here, a decade earlier, uh, in 1768, the regulators of North Carolina are going to do it again. And there's something important here, which we'll talk about after we go through them. But here's what they said. And I am going to read these word for word. I don't like to read to you. I know it's boring, but it's important. They said, number one, we will pay no taxes until we are satisfied they are agreeable to law and applied to the purposes therein mentioned. Fair enough. Again, they're not rebelling against the authority of the king or the empire to take taxes from them. They're rebelling against the corruption and abuse of the use of those taxes. Number two, we will pay no officer any more fees than the law allows. I would say that's fair as well. And again, uh, they have no issues paying the fees. They just don't want to pay more than they legally need to. 
Number three, uh, we will contribute to collections for defraying necessary expenses, attending the work according to our abilities. Number five, that in cases of differences in judgment, we will submit to the majority of our body. To all, we do solemnly swear in conscience of the common oath to solemnly affirm that we will stand true and faithful to this cause until we bring them to true regulation according to the true intent and meaning of it in the judgment of the majority. So, da-da-da-da-da, here we are. Uh, it's a list of grievances. It's well thought out. It's very legalistic. Uh, it is very thorough. This is something we often miss when we talk about life in colonial America, at least for, for Britons. Uh, it's that we forget the British citizens in the 18th century who all have legitimate grievances, by the way, already live in the freest country in the world. They do. Uh, Britain's parliamentary monarchy affords the average citizen more rights, more freedoms, and more liberties than any nation that's ever existed in world history to that point. Now, do they have legitimate problems? Yes. But the fact that they feel comfortable enough to meet write their problems down, and sign their name on the darn thing, tells me that they expect, anticipate, uh, and believe they are fully within their rights to do so. For most of human history, you make a document like this, you're dead. There's an easy way that dictators and kings get rid of their enemies. They just kill them. But in this case, again, the British people are already the freest people in the world. So they have the right to do this. I can't stress enough, these people are not rebelling, these regulators, against the king. It's, it's, they're rebelling against the corruption on the ground within the bureaucracy of the colony. So where do things get nasty? Uh, during that meeting, one of the people they single out as their great enemy, again, is not the governor of the colony, not the king of the empire, but he is one of the major bureaucrats of Orange County, North Carolina, named Edmund Fanning. And he goes by Ned Fanning. And Fanning is one of these guys that really sort of exemplifies everything they hate about the East. He's well-connected in the East. He has a position in the West because one of his wealthy Eastern buddies gave him the position. And not only that, but he has a lot of different positions. So he can collect fees from the people for many different reasons, all the time. Uh, he's not the only one guilty of this, but uh, he is certainly the most visible and easily becomes the most hated. Well, whenever Ned Fanning hears about this meeting, he immediately has many of these regulators arrested, and he lists them as insurrectionists. He throws them in jail. If you know anything about the geography of North Carolina, this town's going to become a big part of this story. He locks them up in Hillsboro. Hillsboro is the capital. It's the administrative center of Orange County. And he says when the time comes, they're going to be put on trial. Uh, and they're going to pay for what they did. Now, again, because they live on the frontier, because they don't live in an instant gratification world like we do, even today, if you want a court date, you have to wait your turn. Then you court only really meets uh, a few times a year. The superior court, the big one, uh, will meet twice a year. And then you have a smaller court in the colony that meets four times a year. But still, 
You could be in jail for months. And many of the leaders of this regulator movement will be put in jail as a result. Uh, when this happens, the regulators, you could say, become agitated. About 700 of them march on the courthouse in Hillsboro. Uh, they are armed. They are angry. Uh, they have all of the trappings of a mob. No easy way to say it. And they demand that the people arrested uh, are freed because they believe that as British citizens, those people have the rights to address those concerns. Now, if you're Ned Fanning, this tax collector, this bureaucrat, he wants no part of this. But this is where the governor steps in. The governor appointed by the king. Uh, the governor will step in and say, listen, uh, we're going to let these people go. We're going to see that justice is done. We're going to listen to your problems. It might sound strange. It might sound unusual. It might sound um, like it goes against what you think you know about the time period. But believe it or not, public demonstrations, riots, rebellions, mob scenes, really angry, the, the quintessential angry mob, if you would, was one of the most common and most effective ways of showing your displeasure with the government in the 18th century. It happened all the time. The streets just rose up. Sometimes they broke windows. Most of the time they just made a scene. As we'll see uh, when we talk about different parts of the American Revolution moving forward. But when the governor addresses these concerns and frees these arrested men, uh, a relative calm starts to spread throughout North Carolina. It lasts about a year until we get to 1770. And this is when things get really good for us. In 1770, you see a lot of the old tensions start to bubble up again, most notably Ned Fanning. He feels emboldened by what happened. He feels like these people are insurrectionists. He feels like the governor maybe has given him a green light to continue doing what he was doing. And he pushes the boundaries further and further and further. Once again, leadership of the regulators are arrested uh, after similar scenes of public uh, unrest, uh, and they're put in jail. What does change is the governor, William Tryon's involvement. Tryon will send out basically a decree that says uh, if someone's rebelling against the colonial government, they need to be punished. But he also says if a local official is being negligent in his duties or is corrupt in his tax collection, in his revenue taking. If anyone is taking advantage of the people of the colony, they'll be arrested too. So the courthouse scene here in 1770, here in North Carolina, Hillsboro, Orange County, is a little bit different this time. You do have some of the quote-unquote regulators locked up, but now you also have locked up a number of bureaucrats who have really been... Uh, you know, taking their uh, unfair share of the of the revenue of the colony themselves. Most notably is Ned Fanning. Fanning's behind bars for this. So you have people at the courthouse, you have them waiting to see what happened, um, and punishments are doled out. The leadership of the regulators is found guilty of insurrection. They're freed with no charge. Uh, and Ned Fanning is also found guilty. And he's freed with no charge. 
The regulators liked it when their own people were let go. They lost their minds when Fanning was released. They stormed into the courthouse. They drug him out by his ankles down the courthouse steps, and they made sure that his head bounced off every single step. Uh, they drug him through the streets, making a, a, a public spectacle of his suffering. They pillaged and plundered Fanning's home, and they ultimately burned it down. And again, this has shown the governor, William Tryon, that things have really gotten out of control. Now, I don't want to make Tryon out to be a bad guy. I don't think he was. I don't want you to think of him as an oppressor or a tyrant, because he wasn't. But he was supervising a colony, and a big portion of the western half was in open rebellion. I don't know if I can blame him for the steps that he takes. But, in 1770, he asks the Assembly of North Carolina to pass what he calls the Riot Act. Specifically, this is called the Johnston Riot Act. And it's passed. And it authorizes, effectively, uh, the raising of a militia force from within the colony to put down the quote-unquote regulator insurrection. Remember, courts only held a few times a year in North Carolina. And in the West, judges and magistrates simply do not feel safe to go to court and host it if the regulators are going to come and, and, and interrupt or interfere with proceedings or maybe even hurt somebody. They don't know. So, we're about to see some real action start up. It involves the governor himself. The governor comes to North Carolina. He actually wanted to build a giant mansion for himself using taxpayer money. This was one of the reasons the regulators really were pushed toward the edge. But there is a sense that the regulators in the West, and it's true, have turned to uh, open rebellion and violence as a means of getting their point across. When the Riot Act was passed, William Tryon wanted to raise a force of 2,500 men. He got about 1,500, but for his purposes, that's fine. And he's going to take these 1,500 men, and he's going to march them due west from the capital at New Bern. And the North Carolina colonial capital is kind of a, a difficult thing because it moves all the time. Once it was in a place called Bath, it moves to New Bern, it will move again. But at any rate, he marches his men west. He knows where the problem is. And he knows he has to get the Hillsborough to calm things down. Now, when he sends his men out, you have to understand they're militiamen. They're paid about, uh, I think, two shillings a day uh, and a signing bonus of 40 shillings a day. They're given a little bit of food uh, and they're sent on their way. You have to understand about North Carolina. There's actually a law that states if you are a man between the age of 16 and 60, you must have regular militia practice. Uh, you must regularly serve in a colonial militia. That means once a month or once a season you get together in your town, you practice drilling, you march around, you learn how to load a weapon and shoot a weapon. So what I'm saying is the regulators are decently trained, and so are these militia that uh, respond to the governor's call to suppress them. None of them are actual soldiers. But again, North Carolina has this militia law where you have to serve in some capacity uh, in a militia. So Tryon's 1,500 men march west. The regulators, and we're not sure the numbers with them, 
uh, because if they would write their names down, they could potentially be prosecuted for what they did, will look very similar to the militiamen. They'll wear street clothes, effectively. They'll have whatever guns that they have available, uh, probably a hunting musket, uh, maybe the occasional rifle, nothing that a regular British soldier would use in a, in a battle. And that's true on both sides. And one of the ways that the governor wants to delineate his men from the, from the regulators, uh, he gives them a, a cockade for their hat. A cockade is a really fancy 18th century way of saying uh, a yellow ribbon. So they have a yellow ribbon on their hat. Uh, they have red ribbons tied around their shins, just below the knee, holding up their, uh, their socks. Uh, and he sends them into battle, looking for these regulators. Uh, you have basically a civil war. None of these men are from England. Uh, that is to say, they're not British regular soldiers. They're North Carolinians. And they need the money, and maybe the experience, and maybe it's political, but they join the fight. So these two armies will come together on May 16th in Alamance County. And this will become known as the Battle of Alamance. And here's how it basically plays out. A local sheriff will go out to the regulators, uh, and he will read to them the governor's message, basically telling them to stand down, your assembly is unlawful, and we view you as belligerents. Uh, and, of course, the regulators all laugh at this. Uh, they yell things like, these are direct, direct quotes, uh, to battle, to battle. They yell things like, fire and be damned. That's my favorite. Uh, and you have these two armies that are unofficial. They're militia, poorly trained, but some training. Uh, and you have this very intense probably thick, palpable tension between them. Before Tryon marched, he was able to get some uh, artillery uh, from Thomas Gage, military commander of all of North America. He'll become famous uh, in four years at Lexington and Concord. They get six three-pound guns. Uh, so these are pretty small cannons, but artillery nevertheless. And believe it or not, swivel guns, which were used on boats. Uh, but they were actually brought to the battlefield, and there were sailors serving in this militia as well. Uh, and the governor says, open fire. So the Battle of Alamance begins. Uh, there is no artillery on the regulator side. Uh, they are being hammered by these heavy guns uh, for the better part of an hour. Whenever that continues, uh, the, the governor will send his troops marching forward. It's basically a rout by that point. The regulators are forced to flee the battlefield, and this is effectively the end of the regulation. Uh, Twelve regulators are taken captive, arrested, uh, in the name of the colony for being insurrectionists. Uh, they will be executed at a later date. One man is hung on the spot. After this battle, the governor does not turn around back east, as you think, uh, but instead he continues west, on what we call a punitive march. And he burns the homes of the regulators uh, and destroys their crops, confiscates the food he can to send a message. The other thing he does, because again, his only priority is calming things down. A rebellion makes him look bad in the eyes of the uh, imperial administration. Uh, he offers a blanket pardon. He says anyone who was a regulator 
can sign this document and you'll be pardoned forever. And many, many, many regulators do sign their name to it and they are pardoned. And that's why we know who they are. Uh, some say nine men were killed on each side at the Battle of Alamance. It's a state park today on Route 62 in North Carolina. Others will say up to 200 were killed. We just don't know that. Um, but it was a significant battle nevertheless. So, what's the result? Well, fast forward in four years. The American Revolution is going to start to heat up. And in five years, combat will come. And you have to ask yourself... Do the regulators take a side? They were very clearly against corruption in the colonial government, but not really against the government itself. Uh, well, this is where things become sticky. Um, some of the regulators did join up with the Patriot cause, and some of the regulators didn't. Because many of the people who will go on to lead the Patriot Army against the British Empire actually marched in 1771 with William Tryon to suppress the regulators. So the regulators that don't join the revolution, because again, it's a big event, but at the end it's also very local. Those men say, listen, you fought against us in 1771. We're not going to fight with you now. So again, American patriots in George Washington's army, uh, some of them did march with Tryon's army, representing the colony of North Carolina, four years earlier. Um, it's an amazing story. It's very complicated. Uh, so for that reason, some of the regulators will stay out of it. Others will actually fight with the British as loyalists. Because again, their beef was never with the Empire. Uh, it was with the local officials that were corrupt. Now, let's talk a little turkey. Let's get some people mad. And notice I waited till the end for this. If you're going to turn it off, I want you to at least listen to all of it. If you go to the Alamance battlefield and go and give money, because it's an important place. Give money to all your local historical sites, by the way, and your favorite history podcast. If you go to that battlefield, you're going to see a couple markers, plaques, and obelisks that all say the same thing. This is the first battle of the American Revolution. If you go inside the museum and talk to a human being with a beating heart, they'll tell you, no, it wasn't. Uh, so this is a really hot issue in North Carolina, if you're listening. Uh, and if you feel very strongly one way or the other, I'm going to try to not argue with you, but explain why you feel that way. Those markers that claimed that Alamance, the regulator battle, was the first battle of the American Revolution, were put up uh, in the late 19th century, specifically in 1880. Now, think about the year 1880, what was going on in America. It was the 100th anniversary of the American Revolution, 1776 to 1783. It was the centennial. And one of the things that swept across this country, as silly and as absurd as it was, was this notion that if you can some way equate a historical site or a battlefield with the revolution in any way, but specifically if you can claim to be the first battle of the revolution, you would get way more visitors, your region would grow in prominence, and everybody would think you're just the greatest. I have seen a number of quote-unquote first battle of the revolution plaques all over the East Coast. If you go to the Battle of Point Pleasant, 1774, 
that will be claimed as the first battle of the revolution. Again, if you go to Fort Loudoun in central Pennsylvania, the Black Boys Rebellion of 1765, they will claim that to be the place uh, that has the first shots of the American Revolution. Uh, and of course, if you go to Alamance Battlefield, they will too. I'm not saying if you feel very strongly it was the first battle of the revolution that makes you a bad person. Uh, and I'm not saying if you're against it, it doesn't. Uh, what I'm saying is the reason we have this argument is mostly public relations 100 years after the fact. If you can be the first, hey, people are going to want to be there. I lived it myself. I worked in a museum when I was in college. Uh, and there was a time, you know, right around not the centennial, but the bicentennial, 1976, that people started to say that George Washington slept here. Or the Marquis de Lafayette slept here. And it was because it brought people in. Cha-ching, bingo. Uh, so that's how it works. That's why we have the debate. But again, go back to the sources. Go back to the words. The origins of the regulator movement. Read men like Herman Husband and James Hunter. And see what the leadership of the regulators were saying. Again, their problem was not with the king. Their problem was not with the empire. Their, their, their goal was not separation from the British government. That's what is the American Revolution. Isn't that the core of it? Uh, all they wanted was fair practices on the ground in western North Carolina in 1770 and 1771. That's it. They didn't want a new governor. They didn't want to separate and become their own colony. They just wanted to weed corruption out of the existing system. They didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So the first battle of the revolution, it sounds good. A lot of North Carolinians do like to say it. Uh, but again, you're saying it because of probably the wrong reasons. Probably because of something someone did 100 years after the fact. Here's what I'd say about it. If you're in that argument, I'll go right down the middle. If it is or it isn't, who cares? It's a very important event. It deserves to be studied on its own, by itself, on its own merits. If you make it part of the revolution, well, you lose a lot of the really important details of the story. But for me, as someone who studies the frontier of empire in North America, the regulator movement, the war of the regulation, gets me excited. Uh, and I'm glad we can do it this season because I think there's a lot of important details we need to weed out. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is wartime.